Welcome to If These Balls Could Talk, where each of us brings forth five topics to discuss, and the other has no idea what those topics are. My name is Mark Pesci, and with me always is the man as legendary as a Yeti and grew up on tons of spaghetti, John Campania. What's going on, John? <laughs> All right, that's my favorite, man. That one is really good. I did well, grow did. up on tons of spaghetti. You, you didn't like the last one, so I had to up the game a little you bit. You had to up your ante. Actually, mom's bringing spaghetti this weekend, so oh, it's a win-win. Fantastic. You more than made up for this one, Mark. Yeah, it's really, really good. So what's going on, Mark? Uh, things are good. Things are good. Very, very busy. I don't know. Oh, what about you guys? I left work today, and it was a little light out, and it made me smile. You know, it was warmed. It was like in the 50s today. It was it felt like it was like a, a heat wave. You and your Rhode Island summers. <laughs> it's amazing how much 50 degrees in January can feel just as good as like 80 degrees in July. Yeah. Now, well, that's our Northeast bodies. Yeah, I know. With us today also is our producer slash assistant to the senior creative director, Pete Steffen. How you doing, Pete? Yeah, I don't think I got demoted this time. So well, no, she got promoted. That's what oh, that was right. the new plan. Oh, right. So you could just raise the ceiling for her and I just right. get further and further away. I might just keep you as an assistant and I'm just going to keep promoting your wife. That's fine. Eventually, she's going to have a title higher than myself and John, I think. When when does her uh, If These Balls Could Talk health plan start? Oh, we don't do that. Oh, <laughs> We were going to pay her as much as we pay you. Exactly. Oh. Oh. And as we pay each other. <laughs> as we pay each other. That's really <laughs> depressing, actually. Let's move on. <laughs> With us today is our special guest, our friend, Dr. Colin Beach. Welcome to the podcast, Colin. Hey, thanks for having me. John and I have definitely been anticipating this one. Thanks for oh, being yeah. here. Oh, We wow. need all the guests we can get. Okay. Glad, <laughs> glad I made it. Uh, no, seriously, it's it's nice to be on. I know you guys have been working hard at this, so it's uh, it's nice to be part of it. All right, let's say we get to know our friend Colin. Now, Dr. Beach, mm. you are one of the more highly educated people that we've ever had on the show, and pro- maybe will ever have on the show, and we wanted to take advantage of that. Now, you pitched us an interesting idea, and we're going to roll with it. So, here is a special guest segment that we're going to call Dr. Beach's Beach Balls. Now, in the- <laughs> I really like that a lot. <laughs> in this segment, we will provide you with three topics, and we'd like to know your thoughts as a person with a PhD in sociology. Okay. So let's start with a big picture question. What are your thoughts on the nature of sports fanship? Oh, wow. Okay. Many and varied. Um, <laughs> be able to be able to answer that. I have to tell you what kind of sociologist I am, because there's a lot of us. Uh, I'm actually an interdisciplinary sociologist, uh, and I look at how technologies get created by groups of people, which sounds kind of straightforward, but there's actually a lot to it. In my school of sociology, there's a couple different camps, and the one I am from is actually something called the uh, the Durkheimian camp. Not officially or anything, right? But there was a sociologist uh, back in the late 1800s, early early 1900s, named Emil. Durkheim, who really liked looking at how societies get glued together. And he came up with something that later sociologists have called interaction ritual theory or interaction ritual like machinery. And the idea is that there is something that pulls people together called solidarity. Sociologists talk about solidarity like physicists talk about energy. It's this, you know, it's the beginning and the end of a lot of things. And in order to generate this glue, 
there are repeated social interactions that take place that are um, groups of people being assembled. The groups of people follow these scripted actions, and there's a strong sense of uh, self-identity, uh, some kind of common referent goal or purpose, right? And so when you look at how these little experiments keep taking place every day and these little machines that are creating this energy, um, that's kind of what we study and follow and understand is, is sort of part of everything, right? And just like energy is never uh, created or destroyed, solidarity is driving every interaction, right? There's a special case, though, where when you get lots of people together and you really script all those actions you and you have a very single sense of being and purpose, right? you generate more solidarity than anything else, right? So the atomic bomb of the solidarity world, if you will, is the sporting event because it fulfills all those requirements, right? Where else do you see this many people getting together? Uh, when are this many people really unified around a single thing, right? So the energy produced is off the charts. It helps me understand as a kid, you know, I grew up uh, out in Western New York, um, like Pete here. Go Bills. And go Bills, right? Well, we'll talk about the Bills Mafia. Yo, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so from that, rival high school, perfect example, perfect example. It explains why an entire town can get turned upside down and behind a single thing when, you know, where else do you see in our society these days an entire city coming together around a single purpose, right? We're a very divided society in a lot of senses, but yet here is this magical thing that unites everybody. That's fascinating to me. You don't get closer to primitive religious experiences in our modern society anymore in any way except for the sporting event, right? So it, it forms, in that sense, a, a spiritual backbone for our culture. It's a big, big deal. Well, I know I'm definitely louder at sports games than the regular person. And the idea of the group theory, the bravery that a person gets at a sporting event really goes along with what you're saying. I like that comparison to religion, too, because it really is. It's a huge belief that people have. And they're, they do believe that they're part of a, of a big picture or their greater good, however you want to call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, faith, right? My poor Bills, just this past game, you know, we ended up uh, not going deeper into the playoffs than we were expecting. And uh, even the day after, though, I put my Bills hat on, I'm at the grocery store and kind of the chip on my shoulder, daring anybody to say anything about my Bills, you know. Did anybody give you a, oh, shucks, our guys at the grocery store? No, just a, a couple a couple single tears, right, as we went by each other in the aisle. <laughs> yeah. A recognition, if you will, right? So um, An interesting yeah. an, uh, metaphor to that is my uh, cousin Christopher is a big Giants fan and grew up in the same Giants, go Giants, you know, blue and red household that I did mm -hmm. pretty much. His uh, foster son is an Eagles fan. They live in South Jersey. And so that game last week, I, I saw them the week before. I was like, are we going to sit in the same room during the game? And he's like, I don't know, man. Right. Mm. Yeah. By the way, Colin, I just heard you say we when you're referring to the Bills, and that's a whole nother issue, right? <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny you say that, too, because probably the other team I have a chip on my shoulder about, or I, I follow, you know, religiously, uh, is probably the LSU Tigers. And that all goes back to uh, when I went down south back in, oh, gosh, I started visiting in 2003, and I moved there in 2008. And I was very fortunate to have a, a father-in-law at the time who was, he had been a sports editor in Louisiana for years, and had been following the high school football circuit down there and luckily for me he had season tickets because he was the editor of the paper and he had to cover a lot of things and uh i got to go for eight years in a row we had season tickets to lsu home games and wow uh, 
I saw a young buck from Ole Miss get his ass absolutely handed to him in Death Valley. The kid guy's name was Eli Manning. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, a lot, met a lot of, and, and 2003 in particular was when I first started. And I remember Mike saying to me, like, this is going to be a big year, right? And that was the first year of the uh, whole LSU renaissance and going to the national championship. And that, and Death Valley, man, whew, you talk about, you know, your your spine the the hair is just coming up on you right i mean that that saturday night into the valley is nothing like it was there an interesting dichotomy for you this past weekend for uh joe burrow and jamar chase i had to to pretend i didn't know joe burrow and that hurt me as a man (laughs) yeah uh it's tough right you know (laughs) so yeah the situations like that but you know it's funny because you know i remember when nick saban left lsu and the whole tiger country was turned against him. And, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out if we were going to accept less miles or not. I remember, you know, thinking, I said to my, my father-in-law, like, so do we hate Nick Saban now, right? Are we going to send him hate mail and stuff like that? And he says, no, he, he, the man did wonders for us. You shake his hand and wish him well. There's a lesson on that. The other thing I was going to say, though, is this whole idea about sports unifying people. You know, when you start to follow a team, you are, you're indoctrinated into this secret culture. And I'll never forget walking in the airport. Uh, for a while, I was a consultant traveling every week going back and forth between South Carolina and Louisiana and walking through Atlanta or O'Hare or any of these airports with my LSU hat on, I would be walking down the hallways and I'd said from across the way, the other escalator, you hear a guy go, (laughs) (laughs) calling out the fight song for LSU. And it's amazing. It's like the Illuminati. And it's been neat too. My my fiance hasn't followed football before really. Um, In fact, I think she was always kind of afraid of, not afraid, but annoyed by obnoxious sports fans. But this year she started following the bills because I do, you know, she'd come home from work and be like, we were talking about how the play action game for Buffalo needs to really improve. And I knew what was going on. It was fantastic. And now I'm like getting high fives at work and people leave, you know, bill stuff on my desk. It's it's amazing. (laughs) Hell yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. Dr. Beach, why is sports so important for society? Like I said, I think it's it's something that unifies people. Well, something that a lot of people say is sports provides a nice distraction from everyday life because, you know, some you listen to the news cycle, there's there's just a lot of bad things going on in the news cycle and it's it's hard to really watch the news. For whatever reason, I w- wake up in the morning, I watch the local news and the national news every single morning. And mm. a lot of times by the time that I'm I'm done, I'm depressed. So <laughs> so sports, I think, I, a lot of times at night I'm watching sports. So it provides a nice little ending to the day after I yeah. started the day off. So well, Con, I think I've dis- we've discussed <laughs> this. I mean, I don't think there's anything that is as gladiatorial as football is. I was about to say, I think the thing that it provides us that no other, you know, industry, certainly entertainment industry does, I think, is the opportunity to excel for people who might not otherwise have that opportunity. How many formats of sport are there? How many different possible ways? Speaking, I guess I will out myself as a progressive, you get opportunities like what happened with Colin Kaepernick. You may feel very many ways about Colin Kaepernick, but the amount of public attention because of his skill he was able to bring to a social issue because of that platform, that's pretty riveting. Sure. Uh, and, and getting back to this idea of, like you said, John, sport being a, a sort of religious primitive experience, you know, when you look at Greek mythology and the reverence they've had for athletes, 
you really come to understand the athlete almost in, in mythology, right? Not actually written mythology. They're sort of like the demigod, right? It's, it's a human with powers and abilities beyond that of the common rabble. And these are naturally the heroes around which we gather and cheer on. And I think sports really provides the opportunity to have those heroes, to provide mythic heroes, right? Uh, which is something that is in short supply. Now we have a lot of science fiction and, and great comics and, you know, I enjoy all that stuff with you guys, but, it's very different when you're watching someone like Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, guys who are real guys with personalities and aspirations of their own. I often say organized sports, there's a seedy element in terms of some of the merchandising and licensing and things of that, right? But those things are glomming on to the important essential thing, which is the, the, the sport itself is pure, right? And it provides clashes between gods, that otherwise we don't get witness to. So in that sense, I think that's that's why it's essential. I think that's so good to push it a little bit on children specifically and just us as people who live sort of boring humdrum lives. I think the existence of heroes kind of in our midst is important mm. um, for our imaginations, but also for our goals, something to strive for, something to be successful against. I mean, if you look at the imposing stature of a guy like Aaron Judge who is, you know, handsome and like six foot eight and he just, you know, he just broke a record that was 60 years old, right? Mm -hmm. In modern day, we have a hero walking amongst us being on Jimmy Fallon, right? And right. I think that's pretty cool when you think about it in that way. So I agree with you completely. Yeah, and I would say I'm a different kind of fan than other guys. You know, um, I, my father-in-law was the kind of guy who'd be like, do you remember so-and-so back in 72 when he had that season that his percentage was higher than 70% on this one particular thing? That was great. <laughs> you know, just knows those numbers, right? And I'm I'm just not a numbers guy. You know, I don't like um I love sports, but I'd be useless at sports trivia in some senses. I just hmm. there there's something different I derive from it, right? And I think it is that sort of the the mythic contest. We who are about to die salute you. This is the no, modern version of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you not entertained? Yes. Well, thanks for that, Dr. Beach. I feel smart sure. already. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> well, smart. I feel very me educated like, now. Me like beer. Let's say we get started. Are everyone ready? Hell yeah. yeah. All right. Here's our first topic. So it was announced that the Carolina Panthers hired Frank Reich as their new head coach. It was explained that Reich was hired because he was an offensive-minded coach and he was already familiar with the Panthers in the Charlotte area. This decision was made despite their interim head coach, Steve Wilkes, leading the team to a 6-6 record and almost winning the NFC South division. Having coached in the NFL for 16 years, of which seven have actually been with the Panthers, and having grown up in the Charlotte area. So, gentlemen, do we feel that Frank Reich was the right hire or is this just a continuation to the race issue that we have among NFL head coaches? I mean, I think it's entirely a race issue. You have a reasonably su successful black head coach um, doing pretty well for a team that he should be coaching and he got fired. And they bring a guy who, I mean, Frank Reich is a good coach, but I don't think they had any business rehiring. And this was not the first opportunity that Steve Wilkes had with the head coaching job, but ended not in a very good way. He also coached one season for the Arizona Cardinals in 2018, but was fired after one year. And there is actually a pending discrimination lawsuit 
against the Cardinals. So uh, Steve Wilkes' wow. representation, hmm. uh, the law firm that is is with his current settlement for for that uh, situation is already tweeting about it, talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably going to sue because they should. Mm-hmm. They should. Yeah, they certainly didn't do him any favors either, trading McCaffrey away. What do you think, uh, Dr. Beach? Do you really feel that there is a big race issue with with hiring NFL head coaches? 100%. Absolutely, no doubt in my in my mind. You know, because I think again, I don't want <laughs> being politicize this too much, right? But structural racism is a thing. It's real. It happens. You know, it's something I think I take for granted. And you know, as I was just talking about the opportunities in the NFL. There is a dark underbelly though too, right? I think that the only good thing about it is that it's easier to spot and it's more flagrant because there's it's all under a microscope, right? And I think it should be called out and identified. And yet they've the NFL. I mean, there's the Rooney Rule that you have to interview at least one blackhead uh, coaching candidate, and you know people kind of laugh at it if there's a head coach vacancy because of the Rooney Rule. They bring in that one candidate, but the, you know he either doesn't get a very serious interview or he's just not even considered even before the interview ever ever comes to light. And a lot of times I think, and we've mentioned this on previous episodes, the owner, for whatever reason, or the GM, they already have their head coach in mind. It could be someone that they've worked for or whatever like that. But most people, especially the in the NFL ownerships, they're, they're white men. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that the same issue last year with Brian Flores? They got him a an interview for the Giants and he didn't know it. Nobody knew it except for apparently Bill Belichick, but they had already pretty much hired Brian Dable. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, what, what was up with that? So it's just obligatory interview just to fulfill us, like fulfill a check mark. That's it. Flores is on um, Wilkes' side. So Wilkes has actually just joined the discrimination lawsuit that Flores has against the NFL. And Wilkes' situation is not, I mean, this is not like a singular thing that's happened to him. So he was the guy who got fired when they hired Cliff Kingsbury yep. out of the blue. Yep. Oh, yeah. Another Cliff Kingsbury reference on the on the show. Hey. And I <laughs> mean, the idea episode. of that is that the ownership of the Arizona Cardinals is giving, was giving, was, right, giving Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury a much longer leash because Absolutely. he had Kyler Murray and Kyler Murray was making the team okay. I mean, it was never great and it was never as good. And we've talked about this, right? It was never as good as it should have been. So here are five uh, black head coach candidates. And I want to know from you guys, how many do you think will actually get a job? Now, there are only four vacancies currently for now, but here are five candidates. Uh, the previously mentioned Brian Flores, uh, D'Amico Ryans, who is the San Francisco 49ers defensive coordinator. I believe it's Ijiro Evero. He's the defensive coordinator for the Broncos. And then you have Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs. And Leslie Frazier, the defensive coordinator of the Bills. So of those five candidates, do we think any of them are actually going to get a head coaching job? Well, I think, I mean, I think Flores probably would have been before he got noisy. I, I don't think they're going to hire him now because I don't think they can. Um, and he's going to continue to push his lawsuit, which he definitely should. Um, I don't think any of the other ones are going to get jobs. I've never heard of any of the other ones. Really, I really think the enemy would get hired. I mean... For one, I'd be he happy. He should have been hired a while ago. Seriously, like with how good the Chiefs, and it's not a yes, Mahomes is amazing, but they scheme people open extremely well. They know how to always get uh, Kelsey open. Like they, they always do so much with their offense and they're creative. The enemy has been great for them. Even, uh, yeah, how long has he been in their coordinator? It's It's been at least three or four seasons, but he's been a head coaching candidate for the last like three seasons 
I, I'd be shocked if he wasn't picked. Can I ask, uh, wh- why why does anybody not have any love for Leslie Frazier? I would have thought he would be a, a candidate there. Uh, I think he was good until this last game. <laughs> he, well, he, yeah. he's had head coaching experience and he hasn't done so well. He's done it before and I think he's only one of the top five candidates because of the Rooney rule. Personally. Mm, okay. Now, D'Amico Ryans is actually the name that uh, is probably the favorite to get a head coaching job out of all of them because the San Francisco defense has just been so phenomenal this year. Yeah, they've been amazing. So I, I he's the favorite, but in my opinion, none of them are going to get a head coaching job. What makes it harder for defensive coordinators now, too, is so many coaches are going more like for head coaching. They're going more towards offensive minded coaches. I mean, was it all of the top four teams right now and seven out of Eight were offensive-minded head coaches in the last playoff round. Did you guys see the video of um, the Bills coaching box after the game? They were very upset. They threw a little (laughs) bit of a tantrum. They were, yes. (laughs) Next topic. So, guys, first off, Pete, Colin, condolences on the Bills' loss and getting knocked out of the divisional round again. Besides the Bills not showing up for the game, one of the biggest stories ahead of the game was the NFL had directed the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills to begin selling tickets for a possible AFC championship game in Atlanta on January 29th. Many Bengal fans were frustrated seeing the tickets being sold preemptively, and I think it got under the team's uh, skin because after the win, both the chorus from the players and the Bengal social media was, better send those refunds. So my question, guys, did the NFL accidentally light a fire under the Bengals? And maybe it was on purpose. I don't think it was on purpose, but they absolutely lit a fire under uh, the Bengals' asses. Now, as a professional athlete, a lot of times you need that little extra bit of motivation. I mean, you hear a lot of times about the opposing players. They they had this quote or the tweet, and it's, it's called like they put it on uh, in the locker room. And it, they, it's like motivation for, for all of them. And this was certainly motivation for all of the Bengals because everyone mentioned it before the game and then certainly after the game. Did and, you listen to the video of uh, Burrow sitting in, standing in the exit ramp and hearing everybody? They were shaking hands and hugging and everybody's like, I better send those refunds. I mean, like... He said it in his every, post-game interview. At, he said uh, it right, in his right post-game game. interview? Mm-hmm. Yup. I mean, everybody had it in their heads. But, you know, that's kind of what we all like to do, right? If if someone is, is uh, you know, they, doubting us or we want to prove them wrong. And when when we do, I mean, we have that giant grin on our face and we just want to rub it in. Yeah, it's a better story. It's yeah. a better story. And I think it's a colossal mismanagement mistake on, on the part of the NFL that they would even allow that. It's just it's disrespectful. It's also logistically wasteful, right? Um, no business making that decision and letting that happen. So I, I actually don't think I, I don't think the NFL did it on purpose. And I actually think the way that they did it, really in all in all seriousness, it's not any different than if it wasn't gonna be at a neutral site because most of the time the, the stadiums are they sell the tickets well ahead of time. I mean, I'm sure the Bills were selling tickets to the or would have sold tickets to the AFC Championship game as soon as the playoffs started. I know that's what a lot of teams do. And then, you know, when if they don't make it, then they just give the <laughs> refunds. That's actually kind of standard operating procedure for a lot of a lot of franchises. But uh, it, the Bengals definitely use it as a motivating factor. And mm. if they if they did it um, the week before, I actually think logistically that would have been more of a nightmare because now all of a sudden you kind of have to you kind of have to do a lot of things last minute. And if you're planning things for tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people, you don't want to do that at the last minute. I really wanted to uh, 
prod Pete's Bills paranoia a little bit? Well, just because you're always like the NFL hates the Bills. Well, no, the I NFL think that, does I think hate that, the Bills. I think there they like the Bills this year because the, they were they were the whole storybook franchise, but uh, dropped them like a hot rock though at the end there. <laughs> yeah, they sure did. And I mean, honestly, I don't blame them. Like they they played terribly. Just I have a bad, I, I, bad I, I, coaching. I, I want to. Yeah, I actually want to ask the Bills fans this: How come Josh Allen never threw a check down? Because it's not in their offense. Every every play is a freaking go route. It's really annoying. And you think uh, that has to do more with coaching than it has to do with Josh Allen's mentality, or I think it's I think it's unfortunately a uh, an echo chamber. So you have his former quarterbacks coach and him who were on the same wavelength. And Brian Dable was the one that said, "No, this is stupid. We're going to do this this way and scheme all these guys open." You can see how their depth of offensive play calling shrunk immensely between 21 and 22. In the first couple of games, they overrided it with just insane talent and teams weren't expecting, you know, 50 yard bombs every other play. But once teams caught on, you could see it like, like especially the last couple of games like New England, uh, Miami in the playoffs and the Bengals, of course, uh, getting spying lanes on Allen because it's either throw deep or Allen runs it. And they had it all figured out. It's like, also, the Bills don't have talent at receiver. I mean, Gabe hey, Davis, what? WR2. Yeah, no, <laughs> wow. they, outside of Diggs. Outside of I am Diggs. really sorry, Mr. Stefan Diggs. I, I don't know this man. <laughs> outside of Diggs. But what's wrong with Gabe Davis? What's wrong with McKenzie? <laughs> yeah. Gabe Davis. What's wrong with Beasley? Okay. Gabe Davis's <laughs> pass catching percentage for targets thrown is 52%. It's. And that's yes, he gets because usually a lot of, he has to jump three feet in the air to catch the ball. <laughs> well, guess what? In passes thrown under ten yards, his catch percentage is even worse. It's wow. below fifty percent. I don't even no. think he got he got thrown the ball under ten yards. <laughs> no, he, he did. Every time, he dropped he dropped half of them. Oh, every, every Those, time I throw, I see Gabe Davis uh, get yeah. thrown the ball. It's he, usually a fifty yard bomb. <laughs> he is not T Higgins. He is not DK Metcalf. He is not the legit number two receiver. That you see on a lot of really good teams wow. that have good weapons. Pete Unchained. Pete, Pete's, in, <laughs> Pete's insanity uh, notwithstanding. I agree, Mark, though, that there's an issue. I noticed all this year that there wasn't enough mixed strategy in the passing game. I, I, I actually saw some games where it was nothing but checkdowns. And there, where were the go routes, right? And I think there's just mm-hmm. something where they're not responding to field conditions and, and what's, you know, outfoxing the opponent. Because obviously sometimes they're prepared for one thing versus another. There was a weakness. And I truly don't know, though, if it's Josh Allen just being stubborn or the coaching staff being narrow of vision i don't know i mean i think that's a really strong point especially for the game this past week where they're playing in pretty snowy buffalo conditions and they're still going for the bombs and these really skill dependent plays that are just much harder in bad weather yeah i I almost went hoarse screaming like what do you not see the snow like sure i mean look look at (laughs) cincinnati's offense yes they have three receivers they're like Jamar Chase and Diggs. Okay, sure. Those cancel each other out. Cincinnati's number two and three receivers are way better than every other receiver Buffalo has. Their running back is better than any running back Buffalo has. And they schemed to make it look so easy. Oh, Cincinnati's coaching was definitely phenomenal. And it was really on, good. On both sides of the ball, too. And as good as it was, you could see it, it showed how bad Buffalo's was in the same game. Yeah. Did you see the Bills? Um, Either, I think the Bills GM, he went on the record saying he didn't want to suck so bad to have a team like uh, Cincinnati. Yeah, well, guess and what? So, 
They took T. Higgins <laughs> late in the second round. Well, right. But he was discussing the fact that they have um, Burrow and Chase still on their rookie contracts right. and they're That's kind of saving part. a little cash for that. So That's they have a huge part. Yeah, I think big, it's a really yeah. big part of how good the Bengals are right now. Watching the Bills play against the Bengals, especially in the second half, it kind of reminded me of playing touch football in the playground during grade school. And because that was essentially the strategy, one guy would just he- heave the ball like as far as he could. We'd all go long and, you know, more often than not, we'd probably drop the ball. But every now and mm-hmm. again, you catch it. But it, that, it just like like you said, it was just a, just verticals and let's see if someone can catch it. No plan. And like Colin said, no adjustments. I have a theory and I don't know if it's outrageous or foolish or not, but I I have to say it. I'm not sure Buffalo was ever able to get over the shock of what happened to DeMar. Uh, I think as an organization, it knocked them out of their box so hard. I'm not sure they ever were in a, in a league like the NFL where edge is everything, right? It's a game of, you know, everybody's fundamentals are so rock solid. It really is just a question of who's got the sharper edge on, on a, you know, and I just, I'm not sure they were ever able to recover. And I think having yeah. Cincinnati in particular come back is almost like, like, so this horrible trauma happened and we're going to send you right back, right into the middle of it. Uh, even with Jamar up in the box, waving and cheering everybody on, that's just, again, another reminder of how absurd that, not absurd, but what a shock that whole situation was. And I just, I don't think they were able to get out of it. As I mean, it was pretty absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Next topic. So Scott Rowland on his sixth attempt got more than 75% of the baseball writers' votes and will join Fred McGriff as the only players to get inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame this year. Notable players who did not get the necessary votes include Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez, and Andy Pettit who are all associated with steroids during their careers. Other players that didn't make the necessary votes and lost their chance to get inducted were Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and Mark McGuire. So gentlemen, do we feel the Hall of Fame truly represents the best players in the game and what should happen to the players connected to steroids? I mean, you think they're sending a message, right? Loud and clear, you guys cheated and we know. And so that being said... I think that they, they've always used the Hall of Fame to, and I think they should, right? Always use the Hall of Fame to kind of represent players that are difference makers, the, like the Derek Jeters. It's a good example. I think that Pettit's steroid experience is a little different. So even though he didn't get in first ballot, I think that he was a real difference maker on the Yankees for a really, really long time. So I think he has an opportunity. I don't think they're ever going to let Bonds or McGuire or Sosa. They're in. off the ballot now. They, they right. had they had their ch- their chance and they're not even oh, on the ballot wow. anymore. So I think they should do a specific Hall of Fame for steroid players. <laughs> Just, <laughs> the Asterix Club. Yeah, it's, wow. it's, they'll, they'll put it right next to the other building and it'll be it, like artificially yeah, sh- pumped up and compensating for something. Yeah, it should be in Las Vegas. It yes. should be in Las yes. Vegas. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's Absurd. right there off the strip up by, by Circus Circus. <laughs> right. Yes. And literally uh, where where Vegas goes to it. die. Yep. Yeah. Just call it the steroid <laughs> hall of fame. Yeah. Well, what's so, even, what's even worse, I think uh, these guys really never were actually convicted. I don't, for lack of a better word to, or to actually use steroids. Barry Bonds is definitely, it's never been proven that Barry Bonds use steroids. Now it's pretty apparent that he kind of did. Cause you know, his head was like five times the size that it was when he first came in the league. 
Mm. Uh, Mark McGuire did ultimately admit it. I don't know if Sosa has, and Clemens certainly hasn't. I, th- I think he's still blaming his wife. The, these are, Clements. yeah, they, they've put up uh, some of the most impressive numbers in baseball history. And you have Hall of Famers that later on we found out that they were kind of bad guys for things a lot worse than, than steroids. May I share a bullshit opinion? Yeah, this is what this is about. <laughs> Bullshit. I think, that, I think that's what we do. This right. Is the theme so, of the show. so, so, earlier this year, over the summer, I was starting to get excited as I do every every spring when you know baseball's coming. Right? Is there something in me? And my my fiance was kind of like, "Why? Why? Why would you stand in this field watching these men chase this thing around? It just doesn't make any sense to me." And so I said, "Well, you've got to watch Field of Dreams." She said, "Why? What? What is? What is it?" I'm like, "It's. It's. It's. it's you have to. You have to see. It's if a story about. It, it's. Come. It's. It's about men and fathers and summer and baseball." She's like, "I. I okay. Fine." So we watched it. And well, you should have told like, her it's got Kevin Costner in it. Well, <laughs> try. Yeah, you know, not not the strongest selling point for her, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, we watched it, and afterwards, she's like, "Oh my God, baseball's really important, right?" And well, so during the movie too, she's like, "Why is this whole thing such a big deal with Shoeless Joe?" And I said, "Well." You know, like an eight men out and the whole Black Sox scandal and everything that went down. She's like, what's that? I'm like, whoa, <gasps> hang on. <laughs> right. So pause I the movie, pause everyone. Pause the movie. And I did that. I paused the movie and I explained the Black Sox scandal and everything that went on. And, and you know, we ended the movie and she's like, yeah, fuck the Black Sox. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's this idea that there's this. Have you ever heard this theory that there's the, th- the three original American sports? There's three classic men's sports, baseball, boxing and horse racing. Right. Love Those it. are the original three. They're the barbershop OG three that everybody's been talking about all this time. And they're therefore they have I'm talking about being sacred in sports and religion. These are our most sacred sports as Americans. And there's a purity to them that must be preserved. Right. And so based on that logic, that's right. If the cathedral to baseball is the Hall of Fame, you cannot let the dirty in. You just can't. Anybody like the hope of the price of your victory, however stunning, was sullying the game. The very notion of it can't be allowed to cross the door. Otherwise, we've lost a foundation, a pillar, one of the few pillars we have left. I would. Say. I agree with that completely. Um, yeah. I th- and I think that's what they're doing to keep those guys out. I mean, you remember when the home run race happened, and sixty-two was just for so long, and then all of a sudden, guys are hitting sixty-five, and then they're hitting seventy. Like, what's going on? Yeah. And then they crack down on steroids, and all of a sudden nobody's hitting home runs anymore and the pitchers are as good as they've ever been you know yeah. like so there's the era is one <laughs> maybe now all the pitchers are using steroids oh, i mean they yeah. are there were there were really, definitely more pitchers using steroids than batters but the batters are they're the ones hitting the home runs and getting really on that thought too it's curious how close a-rod got because didn't he use steroids too absolutely he admit he's yeah. admitted it multiple times too this this was only the second time that he was on the ballot. He got the uh, 35.7% of the vote. Here are the players that almost made it, and I would like to know whether or not you think they're a Hall of Famer. So the the one that was the closest, he came in with 72.2% on his fifth attempt, Todd Helton. I like Todd Helton. Is he a Hall of Famer though? I don't think Todd Helton's a Hall of Famer. Do you think Scott <laughs> Wait, do you think Scott Rowland is a Hall of Famer? I don't really think Scott Rowland's a Hall of Famer either. These are forgettable players that pass through baseball mostly 
unfazed. I don't even know who they are. I'm sorry if that's embarrassing, but yeah, I don't know who they are. So Scott Rowland was a a third baseman primarily for the Philadelphia Phillies, and he was one of the most phenomenal third basemen I've ever seen. Like he, like defensively, he, like nothing got by him. He he was just amazing at third base. And they call Mm. it, they call it the hot corner because usually you have like less than a half a second to react to any ball that gets hit at you as long as I've been watching baseball. He is the best third baseman I have ever seen. I mean, still though, right? We're talking about players who make an impact. All those years on the Phillies, he only wins in 06. I I don't think championships necessarily mean anything, but it's... But I think they do though, right? Uh, You're talking about... You're talking about players... You're talking about players, though, that have impacted the game somehow. Yeah. You know, changed the way we play, changed the way we looked at pitching, changed how something worked, right? Right. I, I will never, like, you know, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm not going to remember Scott Rowland. I'm not. I will. There's, there's no way. I All didn't right. know him either. Next on the list with 68.1%, Billy Wagner. He was a closer primarily for the Houston Astros. And this was his eighth attempt. I mean, it's the same problem. Same I mean, problem. Yeah, I do know Billy Wagner, but it's this, it's John's right. It's the same problem. All right. Next on the list is Andrew Jones, who got fifty eight point one percent. He was on that great Braves team, and so same logic. I think Andrew Jones has a possibility. I don't. I don't think so. But the number one thing that I definitely remember about Andrew Jones and our last uh, guest, Jeffem, can can attest to this too. He was always notorious for being so nonchalant catching fly balls in center field. Like he would just like look at the ball, and at the very last second, he just hold up his glove and catch it. <laughs> yeah, he did do that all the time. All right, next on the list, Mr. Yankee fan's gonna love this. Gary Sheffield. Gary 50, Sheffield. Fifty-five percent of the votes. I like Chef. I love Gary, but no. <laughs> His bat wiggle. The bat wiggle. The bat I loved wiggle. It. I loved yeah. it. I, I would always emanate that or emulate that. <laughs> All right. Um, I mean, we don't have to go through this whole we're list. We're not going to go through the whole list. There's a lot of mediocre players on this list. Yeah. There's a lot of mediocre <laughs> players. I think Manny deserves to be in. I actually think Omar Vizquel, again, not very good offensively necessarily, but the best shortstop of my time, I think, defensively. I mean, looking at this list, and you know my feelings about Alex Rodriguez, but looking at this list, I think Manny Ramirez really pops out to me. I mean, I think yep. he was part of that magical Boston team, right? He was, yeah. That mm-hmm. won after 100 years, man. Well, like you say, he altered the course of the baseball story, right? Like he touched right. it and it went a different direction because of him. Yeah, That's I hard. could see that making. Hard. Yeah, I could, I, see, I could see them making an exception for that. Uh, as opposed to like just dominating numbers being the thing that gets And I in. know because I hated Manny Ramirez, but in a way that a Yankee fan hates a Red Sox. <laughs> he was the reason primarily, I think they won the 2004 World Series. 100%. His, his numbers were just absolutely mad. Like, I think he was batting over 500 in the World Series. or Ridiculous. Like but yes, so that's why I mentioned in my intro between A-Rod, Manny, and Andy Pettit had not been for the steroids. I think all three of them would be in the Hall of Fame. I think Pettit probably deserves Andy it. Andy Pettit, certainly. Yeah. Get to the next topic. Do it. So, guys, returning to prepping for our robot overlords, new research has come out by a Wharton Business School professor named Christian Terswich, and it states that OpenAI's ChatGPT would be able to receive a B to a B minus on the final exam for the Wharton NBA program. Uh, he went on to talk about the important implications this has for a business school education and says, 
OpenAI's ChatGPT3 has shown the remarkable ability to automate some of the skills of highly compensated knowledge workers, including analysts, managers, and consultants. So my question, what do we think about the speed of AI advancement? As well, do we think they should continue at this pace even though it means the replacement of content delivery positions in the knowledge workforce? Isn't that scary thought that AI can <laughs> essentially get you a B or B minus in in a in an entire college program? That's yes. just I mean in a very 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 good MBA program. Yeah. Like maybe the best. I think it That's, says more about the state of higher education, but you're really poking hmm. me in the eye because I actually wrote my dissertation on artificial intelligence. Ah, it's like Ooh. I remembered that and yeah. did. <laughs> I'm scared and yet I'm not scared at all because I have this whole weird theory on artificial intelligence. Basically, you have a piece of software that is manipulating syntax, right? Um, we've been doing this for a long time with various different kinds of machine learning algorithms, right? And the, they've gotten so good at ASCII text manipulation with these heuristic algorithms that it's startling to us that they're able to learn things. But, you know, the way the human brain learns and the repetition it goes through and the, again, as a sociologist, right, the socialization that's going on, we're constantly creating artificial intelligences that are following rules. What I'd be really impressed with, though, is an artificial intelligence that can learn how to do basic addition, subtraction, and multiplication, but not because it's programmed in, right? But, but learn it like a two-year-old does mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. repetition, discussion, right? Learn it the weird, organic, wet, wired way. I think when that starts happening, then you've got real problems. Then it's the whole James Cameron Terminator 2 scenario. That's right, because that's a very, very different kind of learning than and this whole um, the other thing I studied was um, uh, mixed mixed strategy game theory, right? And Nash equilibria and 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 the whole there's like a whole poker movement right now that's all about min maxing and following this particular set. And these machines have been really good at this for a while. It's such a limited thing, so it can pass the exam, right? But can it? But can it go to work every day? Can it go to work after it's had a bad fight with somebody, right? And now it's at its job, and is it still going to perform? And it's like those are such different, radically diff altered forms of intelligence that this trick um, doesn't impress me. If I may go on, one last thing. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Way back in, so the, before I got into studying artificial intelligence, I studied automata, which these the 17th, 18th, 19th century clockwork mechanisms, because people were so impressed with these clockwork mechanisms, the whole artificial life conversation began happening. And these things are going to take over the world, right? And the most famous example of this was by this uh, French tinkerer called Vaucanson, right? And he made this duck. And it was like, imagine a refrigerator made out of wood that weighs a ton. And on top of it is a small mechanical contraption that looks like a duck. And you can put grass in its mouth, right? And the grass would go through this weird series of intricate mechanisms. And this sort of poop would come out on the other end. And people thought it was a miracle. It was just like these new Lenza, you know, avatars that we're getting. It's these stories that are being really like, well, it's so curious and intriguing, right? Because back then they thought there was something about the labyrinthine network of intestines that people thought was magical and relates to the brain because it's similar and the way it folds in on itself and stuff. And just very impressed with this party trick. I would censure to say, John, this is this era's party trick. We're no closer than we were back then, and we may never actually get close because there's something about social social intelligence that, that is unique to humans and homo sapiens sapiens. So what I think is an interesting point, and the reason I brought this up, um, I had a knowledge professional at my job 
come to me and talk to me about ChatGPT. And mm-hmm. this person's job was to write copy for the particular programs that my business does. And I really warned her because I said, this is the kind of thing that replaces you. When it comes down to it, if a business could buy its own chat AI for $30,000, right? Or even yeah. $100,000, and it could put out copy, any copy you wanted in less than a minute, and it's good, good enough to print. Why do we need those people? Why do we need those people writing copy? Why do we need those people checking syntax? I mean, just why, right? And you know, right, business likes to save money. And this is a money savings. It's efficiency, like an example of it completely. Well, you got to think about it from a manager's point of view. If you have a certain budget and you could hire this thing, right, that's got Susie. Susie gets, you know, 60000 a year writing copy for this thing. We've got this software in for, you know, it costs us 2000 a year. You know, the man, it's not a question of is the technology displacing Susie. The question is, are we going to now let Susie do other things for that money, other areas in our organization that needs attention? God forbid, are we going to promote her or give her more interesting work? That's the real question. Or are we going to liquidate her position and the managers are going to keep the money that we saved? I mean, that's well, an interesting question. And really, it's an interesting question that poses itself well, to business today, right? But it makes the software substitutable with illegal labor, right? Or, or third-party labor, offshore labor. Right. It, that's the same conversation. It's not a conversation about technology. It's a conversation about management and budgets and the way we invest in organizations or not. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because we brought this up on another episode. Should the AI be treated as a human being? Because it's it's technically not a legal labor if you don't consider the AI a person. Right. Right. Uh, kind of going back to uh, uh, like students being able to use AI to to write papers and what I mean, that's definitely a slippery slope. In in our educational systems, we're so kind of focused on grades and not necessarily focused on whether or not the person retained the knowledge or actually learned something. I mean, I I actually remember from from college, I probably learned a hell of a lot from my courses where I got Bs than I the ones that I got A's. Cause I and I think point, it's because yeah. I had to I had to work for the Bs, I think, a little harder than the A's, mm-hmm. if, if you believe that. Um, and I, ju- I just retained so much more of from those classes than the ones that I kind of just had to coast by. And, and I didn't really have to do that much work. And so, I think the human millennial is a lazy creature. Um, yeah. And I think that if there was an opportunity to get 70% of a paper in five minutes out of a machine and it was good, I don't think... I don't think many of them would pass that up. Certainly um, not. What's interesting well, about chat what's interesting well, about chat GPT as a AI conversation is that this is the first one that's really being very aggressively funded. And yeah. it's being aggressively funded by Microsoft. Microsoft owns OpenAI. They're paying OpenAI to build this thing and they want to put it in Bing and they want to have they want to revolutionize the search engine right they want to make the search engine be able to be asked open-ended questions and have answers so I taught undergraduate sociology for four years uh, along with a couple other courses as well and I if I was teaching today and I became aware of this and my I would sit my students down and say listen this has changed the nature of knowledge knowledge management and what it means to be an information worker guess what I now take it for granted you're going to use this tool in preparing your assignments 
And they would look at me like, are you kidding? I'm like, no, not at all. You know, if it's as useful as you say it is and as effective as you say it is, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you four topics. Go and use the machine, generate four different essays, and then submit one of them that you think is the best and tell me why it's superior to the other three. That's the skill set. Right. And there's an intrinsic task of now I need you to not generate the information. The task is not to generate the information. It's to compare and contrast different sets of information for which is more valid. Right. That's a different kind of critical reasoning. Surprise and surprise the kids. They'd still be learning. Right. That's, that's a good lesson. That's a really yeah. good lesson. Really, really good. And you're because you're try you're actually teaching them something as well because yeah it's it you're right it doesn't necessarily matter the content it's it's the critical thinking that they have to mm -hmm. kind of concert on yeah I mean I I still claim that that is the only thing that I am probably pretty good at I did just okay in school I mean we went to a good school but I was definitely not motivated the way I should have been and um, but the thing that I took from that is how to solve a problem and how to solve a problem with tools yeah and so. I mean, I, I do IT professionally, and that is my job. Uh, you get a problem and you solve it, and you don't you don't need it spelled out. And I think that's a skill that not a lot of people have. It makes me kind of valuable in the workforce, but not because I know the history of the Roman Empire. It's because if you have if you tell me your computer's slow, I can kind of piece together why. Sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's really it. I mean, it's it's people learning how to solve problems, but you really should try to minimize that kind of stuff like utilizing that it's kind of a crutch when you're in college like going back to what colin said too it's like what did you learn you, you just you just told the computer to do your work for you instead of like actually learning how to write this yourself right hey john I mean, why did the roman empire fall <laughs> <laughs> next topic so Sean McVay is still the youngest NFL head coach at the age of 37 which is younger than we all are unfortunately now, this past season was incredibly disappointing with this being his first losing season as a head coach at 5-12, and 12, and especially considering he won the Super Bowl the year before. And he's been going back and forth about whether or not he wants to coach again, but I believe he had come to the decision that he will. So, gentlemen, what do we feel happened to Sean McVay this year, and is he really in it for the long haul? I mean, talk about a Super Bowl hangover. Seriously, yeah, I, think I think that's one of the worst ones we've ever seen. I think it might be the worst one in history. And the, see, the Rams situation is so funny because their staff changed in such a particular way. Um, losing Von Miller, having Robert Woods be old, you know, having their running backs situation kind of fall apart. That you don't really, you can't really tell if it's Sean McVay's fault. Um, what is what is going to happen, which is what happens in a lot of sports franchises, is they're going to blame somebody, and it's generally the coaching staff. Well, I mean, you, you had their big left tackle, too, maybe, uh, that won the Super Bowl with them, and, you know, that was his last hurrahs, and he yep. didn't play this year. And the offensive line for the Rams this year was horrible. And like, that was one reason why Stafford was not playing well, because, you know, he didn't have enough time to throw the ball. He'd he hike the ball, and too. He, oh, that's because he kept getting hit. <laughs> yeah, right. But, I mean, he even started the season hurt. His, his uh, throwing hand was hurt. But this season definitely apparently was a huge mental drain on Sean McVay because he he contemplated whether or not he wanted to coach. Now, he did the same thing after winning the Super Bowl last year. He kind of was contemplating, like, oh, do I really want to keep coaching? But he obviously did come back, but he came back to just an incredibly disappointing season. I mean, do we think that he has the quote-unquote mental health to 
to be a head coach for a long, long time. And Well, if you look at what they're doing even right now, Liam Cohen, who was the OC this past season, he's already left and they're already looking for a new OC. Kellen Moore, like I had said before, is a very good coaching candidate. And I think that OC job is going to be really good for him. I think Michael Fleur also is, a, and I think Michael Fleur is actually winning as far as, as far as the hiring process. I think he'll probably get that job, but like we've been talking, um, offensive coordinators um, really do make a difference in an offense. And I think it shows how stalled the Rams offense looked last season and how Liam Cohen really wasn't doing a very good job for them. The defense wasn't so great either, though. They were supposed to be, they were touted as a really good defense and the defense just did not show up because they got old. Yeah. Like Jalen Ramsey's a little older, Aaron Donald's a little older. They did, now they also lost Von Miller. And, and, and Bobby be, Wagner is not Von Miller. Bobby Wagner is not Von no, Bobby Wagner right. is we, just... An we thought he was going to be great, and it, he just wasn't the same level. They be they fell victim to the, this, you know, when they went all in for the Super Bowl, and now you get hit by the larger contracts because the way the NFL contracts are worked, and, and, and you're also left I mean, that's with the, the way it happens in everything. That's, that's the way it happens in, in Pete and I's Dynasty Fantasy Football League. Sometimes you buy a Super Bowl, and when you buy a Super Bowl, you're generally not that good after. I inherited a team that had given away three years of first round picks were gone out of and and multiple seconds. I had nothing but third round picks for like the next two seasons unless I like traded a bunch of my players away because they literally they bought a Super Bowl or they bought a championship and then left. I'm not sure I would ever trade a first round pick. They left me with a shit show team. Yeah, I bet. So here are some other head coaches that retired young, and I think all th- all of us would say that they're Hall of Fame worthy or one of the best coaches of all time. First one I'm going to mention is Bill Cowher at 49. He hung, hung mm. it up pretty much right after he won the Super Bowl. He's like, I think I've done everything that I wanted to do in coaching. And so he, he t- retired at the age of 49. For a broadcasting contract. Well, that's true. He's yeah. making real money now, right? I forgot he was that young, though, when he retired. Uh, another one. Tony Dungy at the age of 53, again, pretty much right after winning a Super Bowl, he hung it up. And then Damn. the biggest uh, name, and a lot of people think are is definitely one of the greatest coaches of all time, John Madden at the age of 42. Football! Just, just up and, and you know, became yeah, The, the John team Madden. that wins is the one that gets to the end zone more than the other. <laughs> he was a brilliant coach, though, man. He, like, he, And actually, at the time that he started, was the youngest, too. So yes. at least he had a decent length career, even though he retired so young. Yeah. He did not have a very long career. He only coached for the Oakland Raiders. And he had a phenomenal winning percentage. Yeah, one of the best. He only won one Super Bowl, though. Right. Uh, only Super one. Bowl, <laughs> Super Bowl eleven, I think it was. Oh, I don't remember specifically. If memory serves. Was. Was the Super Bowl in those for like the first ten years? Was it like the Pro Bowl? Like, did people think it was sort of silly? It's like now it's like it's the reverence of the Super. Bowl. Like he had to be kind of um, stupid at first. The first, right? the first couple, the the first two were kind of a a joke because Green Bay was just so much better than everybody else. I think Super Bowl three with Namath and everything making such a big deal about this a upstart AFL team like that started turning the tide and by the time the two leagues merged I think it had already by Super Bowl 5 it had already become a big thing. Yeah, yeah this the Super Bowl the way that it is now probably didn't really come this way until maybe 20 years ago, I think. Like it was start, definitely starting to grow at the merger, but it right. didn't get to the point that it is now, I think. Right. The insane spectacle. Yeah. Super Bowl 25 with the big Whitney uh, Houston yeah. thing during the Gulf War and the Jets flying over. Like, oh, our, oh, yeah. It blazed uh, into my memory. That was the first one the Bills went to, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but not to distract, you know, Tony Dungy retiring. I can't, I, I think it would be, you know, he may have done that just to concentrate on family stuff. I think he had a couple things going on, right? I believe so. But, and he's never had the inkling to, to jump back into coaching and he's, a, he's another yeah. one that's gone into, into broadcasting. Yeah, True. he's got a right, cushy yeah. broadcasting job now. But he's a great NFL mind, and he's. Uh, I mean, I think that's almost why they leave early. That broadcasting money is real, and I mean, that's oh, what yeah. Romo's doing. That's what mm-hmm. Aikman's doing. I mean, a lot of very good football minds they go into broadcasting first because the networks are just like, well, here's a lot of money because people want to see you on television. Rex Ryan, same thing too. I mean, he was a little bit older, but he took he took a big broadcasting deal. I loved, although, loved you know, it was Rexy. questionable whether or not he would get another coaching job, but. You know, I got to say, I so I watched Rex Ryan on um, on NFL Countdown. He has the whitest teeth I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Steph, my, my wife, Steph pointed that out the other day. She was like, look at his teeth. They're so white. I don't know if they're real or not, but they're just like the I, I can't stop staring at it. And it reminds me of that Friends episode where Ross like over bleached his his teeth. And he was, yes. like, kept, he, he was like blinding someone on a, on a date. <laughs> I was going to bring that one up too. That's a good. So, Mark, what are our thoughts about the return of Bill O'Brien to the Patriots? I mean, who kind of called that, right? Yeah, we did. We scooped <laughs> that story. <laughs> I would have put money that that was going to happen. Like, I that's how confident I was that it was going to be Bill O'Brien because Bill likes coaches that he knows. Well, after the worst offensive season for the New England Patriots in the twenty years of Bill Belichick coaching, I think that there was definitely room for change. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I revel in their sadness. Me too. Yeah, sorry. We won just as many Super Bowls as the Bills this year, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I think Mark's a secret Bucks fan these days. No. Time for the next topic. So guys, as someone who really likes bleeding edge technology, both of you, this is for Mark and for Colin, have given me the electric car bug. For those who don't know, both Mark and Colin recently purchased electric vehicles from Hyundai. Last year, automakers sold, get this, 807,180 fully electric vehicles in the U.S. That is 5.8% of all vehicles sold. Now, this is up from 3.2% a year earlier, and in comparison... Total U.S. auto sales fell 8%. Now, Tesla still dominates the market at 65% of electric vehicles sold, but other companies are kind of stepping up their game. Ford's at 7.6. Hyundai and Kia are both at 7.1. So, guys, is it time for me to get on the electric bandwagon? And what are the best electric cars currently on the market? Is it time for you to get on the bandwagon? Uh, You have to kind of assess your driving so I know you guys like to do long driving trips and whatnot. So an electric vehicle is definitely not for that. Now you could get a hybrid that might pot- potentially help you out. But um, I have a nine mile commute mark to change your data up just a little well, bit. Well, when you, you guys like to drive for family vacations sometimes, right? We also have more than one car. Well, so go on, Mark, because I have strong opinions on this whole thing. <laughs> well, so, so all right, the reasons why I got an electric vehicle, I work from home. How long is my commute? 10 steps. Don't really need a gas vehicle for that. Uh, I really got sick of have being, you know, a uh, just a victim of having to pay for whatever gas price the oil companies decided that they were going to charge us to. So essentially, because I don't really do long trips anymore, the longest trip I, I do really is my trip to Albany, which is about 150 miles, uh, give or take, or, if, or to Clifton Park, um, upstate New York. So I could do all that on one charge uh, on my uh, on my battery. So uh, I 
that that's the reasons why I I wanted to get an electric vehicle. Now, if I wanted to go to Buffalo, New York, that I could not do that on one charge of of my electric vehicle. Thankfully, I don't really have that strong of an urge to go to Buffalo. Sorry, people in Buffalo that know me. That's um, okay. <laughs> so that I mean that was the reason why I got I went electric. What about you, Colin? So. I'm a car guy. I've been a car guy for a long time, and I just absolutely love them. And I think right now is one of the best times to be a car person that, you know, maybe in the next, the past hundred years, in the next hundred years. I think the electric vehicle is is hugely significant. We're at an inflection point. I, you know, I tell people, imagine, go back, if you will, to what was it, roughly 2009, when we all have our, our Razor phones. Remember the flip Razor phones? Wow, I had so a cool. Razor. And I'm sending my, you know, like, oh my God, I got a little message in this little window and I'm such hot shit with this thing, right? And my friend goes by and what is that thing? Oh, it's this new touch iPhone. It's changed everything. And in a minute, in an instant, the entire cell phone market became not, uh, you know, oh. with all these different features. It's like, do you have touchscreen or not? If you don't, you're old <laughs> and yeah. you suck, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And I think the EV is at a point now where, you know, the other thing I compared to is the internet. When the internet came out in 93, it was obscure and weird and strange and people didn't really use it much. And that was the era of the, the, the bulletin board was still alive, the emotems, you know, prodigy and all that um but then from 93 somewhere and it, it was it was not widely adopted right but at 99 2000 something happened where just something clicked where there was enough infrastructure that suddenly everybody's on the internet right and it's i think right now you're seeing the exact same thing with the electric vehicle they're hybrids they're weird they're pain in the ass people make fun of them they make funny noises you know there's ads or they don't make any noise or they don't make any noise <laughs> right. right we've been taunting the electric vehicle for about six seven years now but a couple of things have happened right first of all the batteries are so much better the range yes. is so much higher the lucid yes. air can go over 500 miles right on a charge um you have the options between all-wheel drive or just rear wheel or front wheel right so you can do i want power do i want do i want long range right so we're slowly addressing the range problem i think the most significant thing we have now though is the fact Fast charge DC battery. Yes. People don't understand that these architectures have gone from 400 volts to 800 volts. The DC fast charging, you can charge these cars now. Realistically, they advertise 20 minutes. Realistically, cold weather, the vehicle being the size it is, it probably takes more like half hour, 40 minutes. Now, in the case of driving cross country, it's kind of this neat experience where if you're going to go 300 miles, take a break, right? It's sort of the electric vehicle for it. We can't stand this as Americans. Like, I want to drive 600 miles continuously without stopping because I'm a, right. I'm a man. I'm a man on a mission, right? Like, But mm. if you really live your life this way, you're, you're going to drop dead of strokes, right? right. Um, the electric vehicle sort of enforcing you to take that break, I think, is going to take us back to 50s hot-rodding culture when America's, you know, manifest destiny to keep expanding west and hollywood and california with all the driving culture that was coming around you used to have the drive-in right the but the the drive-in restaurant i'm not even talking about the theater right but these malt shops if you will where it was part of the essential part of the culture was you pull up in your car you take a break you get some food you have this experience and the whole time right the great thing about these is you're still touching your car you're still part of your car you're you know and people with we love that and so you're going to see 
the electric loves truck stop come to, right like on, on i-95 um howard johnson's might come back for all we know waffle house is going to have these rows of fast chargers and they're going to welcome people on the interstates you pull right up you plug in your vehicle and it's going to be part of this experience where charging them will become second nature and i think the final thing i'll say in this you're starting to see chargers freaking everywhere not just the level one chargers which are the trickle chart right but these level two fast dc chargers that infrastructure is starting to take off and eventually we're going to start laughing at the gas pumps it's coming and it's going to be here sooner or later so so john answer your question i think we're at that inflection point you would now be on the cutting edge almost like remember bitcoin mining like you're the guy who's got the miner now (laughs) 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 right you're just getting in in time i think before this thing is going to just explode everywhere and everybody's walking around with ipad touches i wouldn't compare evs to bitcoin because that just that could imply that evs are going to crash so (laughs) i mean they do crash right no yeah Um, only when self-driving i think it's an infrastructure question and um this is my dad is a old right-wing republican and it is sometimes see i love that i love that argument by the way that that their argument is like well if everyone went to an ev the uh, the uh the infrastructure could not support it it's like well, that's, no, that's not, not gonna even happen what, but that's not even what i'm saying his main argument right is where do i charge my car and i'm like well see the problem for him is that he doesn't see chargers so he was under this impression right. that he couldn't get his car charged at places like the casino my parents love the casino um <laughs> and so i actually i just looked it up on the internet three seconds i'm like look the, the casino has chargers all over and the so casino. sure of course. It, it is a position right now um governmentally fast charging ev the market that is really behind right now is the transportation market to get us to carbon neutral and to a place where we're really making a difference on the environment is we have to fix cars. We have to fix all the cars in the major metros in America. We have to fix all the cars in the major metros in Asia. And I mean, that's a real big hump. But if you look at what that has given us is it's given us money. And I've always been a person who argues that money fixes technology problems. And so because governments are now investing in infrastructure, I think the infrastructure is going to come very far, very fast. And so Pete and I are in New York State. I know New York and Colin is in New York State. And I know New York State is really investing in um, infrastructure and chargers and cars. And they're giving a lot of money back. And so that's why I think it's a really good time to invest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mark, you're in, I mean, in Providence. Like, how prevalent are the chargers there? Oh, they're all over the place. Yeah. So you figure all over the place. And it's and, and if I go into Massachusetts too, they're all over Massachusetts mm-hmm. as well. I also think Colin's point is really really strong. I mean, the idea of a safe drive. So you say three hundred miles. You're really not supposed to drive more than five hours at a clip before you take a break anyway. Yeah. Oh, you're not a man. <laughs> <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> you're not a true American. I think honestly, as the commute as the commuter car, the electric vehicle makes total sense like that's what i want to get mine for eventually like my next car is going to be an electric car it's just a question of when but when i do i drive about 90 to 100 miles a day commuting it's it's a decent commute but that's Mm. perfect right for a daily thing i charge it overnight and it's good to go every single day i mean how how great would that be yeah yeah, I think in my wildest dreams, my you know, my son is 13 now, and I think in my wildest dreams in his lifetime, we would lick cold fusion, we yeah. would get it producing sort of endless electricity, 
cleanly with you know zero carbon footprint and we'd be in cars that go fast as hell they're fun as hell every night you plug them in and you know it all just works right and mm-hmm. and ideally this is the direction we're moving and this the final thing i'll say is is you know i used to have a five liter v8 2013 mustang boss 302 it was phenomenal and nice. i would regularly go back and forth from baton rouge to little rock arkansas and there was this stretch of road where i had no choice but if i was going to pass a truck it was just too lanes right me going one direction the other's coming the other and if you got stuck behind a truck doing 55 you're in real trouble so this car let me go from about 60 miles an hour to about 120 in about two seconds it was phenomenal right and Hmm. i think you know for the speed freaks the torque you get from these electric motors and the instantaneous acceleration you get is way better than gas and i say that as an engine tuner someone who's been working on these little four-cylinder cars and getting 20 pounds of boost as i you know go wide open throttle electric's better well it's all power better at performance and sport than the gas engines and if that's not the only you know it's like not even the environmental impact my god so for me it's just become this no-brainer and i'm a bit of a ev evangelist now i guess (laughs) it's all good in a world where there's a next topic so the nominees for best picture got announced and there were 10 total pictures named as the case for multiple years past there are many movies that we actually see and the others that we may or may not have pretended to see so gentlemen what movies have we seen that have been nominated for best picture and do we have a favorite to win and let me know if you actually want me to list the nominees yes please all right, so the nominees were, drum roll, please. Stop it. All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. I saw All Quiet on the Western Front, and it was exceptional. I could easily see that winning. Uh, as well, everything, everywhere, all at once. We, my, my fiance and I absolutely loved, also just breathtaking. That is the odds-on favorite to win. It's amazing what they did with such a small crew. I haven't seen it, but I've seen a lot of, like, of the VFX crew and, and how they created stuff with such a small amount of people and such a small budget is really, really cool. I think it'll be a real shame if everything everywhere all at once doesn't win. And I think it will win. I think that the Academy is very diversity driven. Now, I think that if that doesn't win, and I will be sad if this happens, I think, unfortunately, the Fablemans probably will to kind of give Steven Spielberg his nod to his little biopic. True. So how many movies have we actually seen, John? I saw Avatar. That definitely shouldn't win. I saw I Top still Gun. Haven't that seen de- Avatar. That definitely shouldn't win. Um, I saw Everything Everywhere All at Once. I think that should win. I haven't seen The Fablemans because I don't like the idea of a Steven Spielberg biopic. Um, <laughs> and um, Banshees of Inisherin, I heard, was very funny. It is on my shortlist, but I have not watched it yet. I watched it the other night. And I have to say out of this, and I've seen all the ones John has, it's the smartest of all of them. And that might work against it. Because really? it's the kind of movie where you it it has funny moments, but it is very dark. And I think I don't want to give anything away, but ultimately a film about depression. Mm. Um, and it's definitely it sits with you, and you have to think about it. So it's you know it doesn't have that feel good 
sort of message that usually you would want to see like in everything everywhere and all at once which is a beautiful beautiful movie right so, i think elvis is kind of an oscar troll you know how they make those movies they put yeah, them out yeah. at the end of the year and they're yeah. very big like the story of elvis presley right the very big story um i think that kid was in um some nickelodeon shows so i don't think yeah back in the <laughs> I day i don't know what i think about that that being yeah. being touted did anyone actually see elvis i don't know i saw it it's it, I I actually really enjoyed it. Although mm-hmm. having Tom Cruise having being that in that weird voice as a colonel was a was a little off putting. But uh, overall, I thought the movie movie was pretty good. It, it's on yeah. HBO Max right now. I have to check it out. I know. Yeah, it's on our list. As is the Banshees of Anishrin. I don't know if I want to see that after hearing don't, what Dr. Don't, Beach said. Well, don't, don't watch <laughs> yeah. it Friday night looking for kicks, right? It's more of a sort mm-hmm. of thoughtful Tuesday night kind of movie. <laughs> I'll say that. What do you guys think about the Best Actress nominees and the drama around uh, Andrea Risenberg? Did you guys hear about this? I I'm not sure I, I did. No. A bunch What's of this? famous women in Hollywood um, petitioned for Andrea Risenborough, who is getting nominated for Best Actress for Leslie, um, to be uh, nominated. And it, uh, she kicked out some African-American actresses who also probably should have been nominated because mm. it was the Ooh. last pitch. And it was like Kate Blanchett and a whole bunch of very famous um, Hollywood women. I did hear that Brendan Fraser mm. is apparently the odds on favor for Best Actor, which is weird to me. He I made that a, too. He made a group of people cry for his performance in He's Whale. Encino when it was man. A, but I mean, he got super fat for this role. Yeah. Are we sure no, it was for the role? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we, we worked in that one. I know like... It, the Whale? When, you worked on it, Pete? Yeah, actually quite a bit. Give it credit? Yeah, I should be in there for credit. Do you have an IMD page page now? Yeah, I do. Yeah? Are you Pete or Peter Stefan? The one Both who worked three. on Joker and a bunch of Marvel stuff. Yeah. Well, that was the beginning. I got a bunch of stuff now. I mean, I'm just like big movies that you've worked on. This Peter Stefan, I've looked up as blank. No, yeah. Peter Stefan. Actually, it's just Sonic the Hedgehog, which is funny because I like barely worked on that. Why am I known for Sonic the Hedgehog? I did You're like, known for all, Sonic all I did the Hedgehog. Remove, I had to like remove dirt from James Marsden's shirt. The teeth was like, you, huh? You did, the, you did the weird teeth boy? His resume no, is just no, a graphic no, had, of Sonic up top. <laughs> Peter Stefan. <laughs> the funny part is for that movie, it's like I worked in that years before it came out because the whole thing had to stop because the the cg sonic was so horrific looking you know those movies don't suck no no they don't suck they're pretty funny. sonic movies really yeah, okay, they, yeah. they don't they don't suck jamie okay. had an i love movies drunk and with jamie your daughter ha- and check them out what happened no like now? i have i love movies and jamie had an interest so we watched the first one i was like this movie i kind of enjoyed and then wow. so we watched okay. so we watched the second one and i was like yeah still enjoying them how are you Weird. not known for stranger things by the way I am. No, oh, I mean, yeah. like, I, I they, they, the, yeah, they list Sonic, but they don't list it's an al- things. It's the just one, a dumb algorithm. Yeah, the You're a dumb really algorithm. Dumb. <laughs> At least old is up there. Like, that's a one that I pretty much sold my You have 32 titles on IMDb right now. Yeah, I've been busy. Hello, Governor. Are you ready for our next topic? So, guys, on Tuesday, New York Giants GM. This is a little bit of a rehash for me, but I'm still sad about my Giants loss. Joe Schoen womp, womp. Uh, said, womp, womp, said they plan on moving forward with Daniel Jones as their starting quarterback. Jones, who is 25, is a free agent at the end of the season as, as they didn't pick up the last year of his rookie deal. They plan to negotiate a long-term deal with him, replace the franchise tag on him before the March 7th deadline. Uh, the franchise tag for a quarterback based off the projected salary cap would be around $31.7 million for the next year. Uh, Jones, who threw for 3,205 this, yards this season and completed 67.2% of his passes. Uh, so, gentlemen... 
While the Giants have chosen to prioritize Daniel Jones's contract, they seem less set on Saquon Barkley. Um, is this as big of a mistake as it feels like? And why the now triple down on what seems like only a slightly above average quarterback? I'm sorry, but Daniel Jones is not a $30 million quarterback. He really is not. And I understand that they probably don't have enough money to re-sign both Saquon and Daniel Jones. However, probably from a business perspective, it is smarter to sign Daniel Jones to a long-term deal than Saquon Barkley, especially with Saquon's history with injuries and the fact that you could easily draft a running back now that, or even two running backs that, because uh, that's kind of what the model is now from a lot of NFL teams to have two really good running backs uh, on your roster, not have the workhorse. Uh, but I'm sorry, Daniel Jones is not a $30 million quarterback. And while you're you're probably right, though, they probably will franchise tag him. And I probably think that's probably better than signing him to a long-term deal, give him another year. And if he does well two years in a row, then maybe you sign him to that big long-term deal. My gut is telling me he is not a $30 million quarterback. I think and- they have this feeling with Brian Dable that he's already fixed. I've talked with this about you guys before. I think that the Giants have a really bad front office problem. I think that they're kind of bad at talent if you look mm-hmm. at the giants this season they're better and sure we have brian dable and we have a revitalized daniel jones but saquon barkley's back mm-hmm. and if you look at the giants receiving core still not that good right oh. they signed kenny galladay to this deal where he didn't get any of his bonuses right because he just had this very mediocre season they have no talent at tight end darius slayton is pretty good but Darius Slayton really only came on towards the end of the season so I mean I don't know what they're thinking I think Saquon Barkley probably had a top five if not top 10 running back season um and oh, I definitely think top he was, five he definitely was in top, top five. five most of the season yeah right and so I mean the fact of it is without Saquon Barkley the Giants are very very easy to cover absolutely Giants would have made the playoffs without Saquon no 100% I agree completely and so I don't really know where their heads are at. You have to learn from Ezekiel Elliott, I think. Dallas signed Ezekiel Elliott to a big deal, and now they're kind of paying for it because he only played like like half the downs this year because Tony Pollard had a great year too. Yeah, but I think you know Pollard's Tony Pollard better. was yeah Tony Pollard was making like a tenth of what Zeke was, and I think Tony Pollard had more yards than than Zeke did. Now Zeke is a is a better short. Uh, distance runner and he got more touchdowns by the goal line because he's a, he's one of those big burly backs. No, NFL teams just don't want to do those big deals for running backs anymore. I mean, they're a commodity. You can get a lot of good, cheap running backs now. So why yeah. for and for less than, than Ezekiel Elliott? So why would you want to sign a running back? I mean, a, the a Dallas is a really good example. I don't think I agree. Dallas came on really until the signing of a real true WR1 and CD Lamb. I don't think they were as good with, with Zeke and out without CD. I think CD really changed that team around. I think it changed around a lot of the ways that the team is covered. It made Dak 100% better. Well, John, I remember telling you earlier this year, you know, we recognize the age of the premium running back is kind of over. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. if you get away with it, great. But it's it's hard to throw a dart at the wall and, and expect it to hit the bullseye for that anymore. Like yeah. you really need to be lucky. There's only one Derek Henry. I think offenses too have like the bar is so much higher and you're, you have to have so much more dimension that there, there is no such thing anymore as a single skill. Quarterbacks have to be able to run now. Right. So it's, yes. you know, a lot of the urgency and importance of the, the premium running back, it just, it just isn't there. So now it's almost like a, like, you know, closing pitchers who have like a weird lefty screwball, right? You need some kind of like, I need this particular kind 
second running skill set, not just a premium running back. Yeah, you you have to be you have to be a smart running quarterback too. I mean, just because you are very very fast and you have an arm, i e. Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, doesn't mean you're you're in it for long haul. You're I mean, both of those previously mentioned guys very similar. To Daniel Jones, the fact that they can run, they they're they're kind of fast as gazelles, but they're not very careful when they run, and both of them got hurt. And I really think that. NFL teams should really learn from from the Kyler Murrays and the Lamar Jacksons. And Lamar Jackson, he's going to get a big contract, not necessarily from the Ravens, as we've kind of talked before, but he will get a big contract from someone and someone's going to pay for it. I mean, Kyler, as soon as he signed that long, long-term deal, oops, he gets hurt. Now, mm. granted, it wasn't from a hit. It Granted, it was an ACL tear, but still, I, I definitely don't think Danny Dimes is worth $30 million a year. See, mm. I, I'd argue, though, like, to me, 30 30- million sounds like a slightly above average quarterback salary now because it's just getting that that's inflated. Awful. That's awful. It's, it's bad. I agree. But I, I mean, and right, that's kind of what the, the franchise tag is, right? It's like, Hey, this is what your average starter position should be paid. Tom Brady. And I, you know, I, I, I love Tom Brady as has been previously established on this, as a man on the show. So he hasn't, he has never been the highest paid quarterback in, in the league. Uh, he's he always restructures the deal. It's usually in like the low to mid twenties, which is still a good amount of money, but it's not thirty million dollars a year. And you know, you, with that extra ten or million dollars that you might have that you didn't spend on Tom Brady, you can get more talent around him. Which I I think that you know all these guys are just, are just trying to get paid, and good for them. They, you know, you should get yeah. paid for as much as someone is willing to give you. You're not gonna if you also want to win championships, it's not gonna happen because there's a salary cap and teams don't have enough money to give around if they're giving it all to you. Now, just to use that as a stepping off point, three out of the four quarterbacks in the divisional or in the championship games are on their rookie deals. All on the rookie deals. All. Mm. Jalen Hurts is a rookie. Um, Brock Purdy, obviously a rookie, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And and Joe Burrow is still on his rookie deal. Joe Burrow has the ability to play with the number one guy like Jamar Chase. Um, you know, Brock Purdy has this crazy skill team around him and George Kittle and Christian McCaffrey. And I mean, I think that the point of the the money savings that that allows them, I think is really strong. I mean, you're paying for you're you are getting a bargain on top talent. What are those rookie deals in the in the you know, under ten million dollars? And Jalen Hurts, his quarterback deal is gonna be, you know, fifty million, right? I mean, how much did they end up paying for Josh Allen, Pete? Uh, his average salary right now is forty three million. Next year he's going to make forty six. Actually, oh, pre- round up for forty seven, pretty much. But so. he's worth that. And Mahomes is the one quarterback that's not on a rookie deal. But he's also in the. He, I, I don't know if he's his cap number is forty million. Uh, but I believe the average. Realm. I believe the average value because it was like a ten year, four hundred fifty million dollar contract or something like that. But uh, this yeah, is the early is on pretty- in that contract. So yeah. I don't know how much it really is. And I think the, the Chiefs are a really interesting point with that. I think that the skill players, Kelsey withstanding, on the Chiefs are just okay. Yeah. But I think they're really well coached. I think they have Kelsey and Mahomes. But you have which Patrick Mahomes, them, exactly. Right, Patrick right. Mahomes makes yeah. everyone better. He really does. I think he could probably make all four of us into star wide receivers <laughs> in the in the NFL. Uh, maybe if you repair my knee. Like if we look at the depth chart on Kansas City, right? Juju Smith Schuster, fine. Okay, yeah. Marcus uh, Marcus Valdez Scantling, fine. But then Kadarius Tony, Michael Hardman. I mean, these are players that 
you do not draft in the first few rounds, right? Well, the big thing now are the tight ends and the running backs for the Chiefs. In the second round, I think. Yeah, you got Jarek McKinnon, who's now apparently... He's you know, a superstar was, in that he, team. Oh now. yeah, he got you a lot of points in fantasy. I remember that. <laughs> yes, in both my leagues, he can, he for whatever. I, the last few weeks of the season, I think he scored at least one touchdown in every single game, which was yeah. which is amazing. And he's a running back. But the tight ends also, they have three very good tight ends. I, one of them, I mean, there's Kelsey, and I believe there's Blake Bell, and I can't remember who the third one is. But all Noah of Gray. them, no great. All of them get utilized. They have Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes is very smart. He throws to the guy that's open. Imagine that. Right. <laughs> right. It's funny to hear you say that, too, because if I was an elite quarterback who could command $30 million, I'd be tempted to say, you know what? Here's $10 million back. I'll give it to you, provided you would invest it in linemen, right? Yeah. And then I have a chance of doing mm. 10 years at $20 million is better than two or three at 30 because someone got my knee, right? That'd be a very forward-thinking move. Well, if you, we look you, at the Bengals, right, the Bengals were managed incredibly smartly and they drafted incredibly smartly and they got the best quarterback in the lat in that they could with the with the top five draft picks that they used then they got the best wide receiver they could and then they just twice. invested in twice right and then they just invested in o-line and that's all they've been doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I the bengals have gotten exponentially better right they had become you know when we were kids it was a joke to like the bengals the bengals were a bad yeah. team they were for a really long time and now they're really kind of a powerhouse, I think. Well, yeah. and Pete might disagree, but I think the Buffalo Renaissance began with investing in the O-line. Not glamorous, but fundamental. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. 2019, yeah. that's what Buffalo did. They replaced like three or four starters there. Right. And they need to do it again because it's not good again. I'm very interested to see what Cincinnati is going to be like in two years, though, because <laughs> all of those wide receivers and Joe Burrow will be off of their rookie deals. And mm-hmm. they're going to have to make some big boy decisions. Yep. Burrow's going to make more than Allen and Mahomes once his contract kicks in. I bet he will. Oh, yeah. He's super right. cool. He Just likes the way sm- things go. He Joe likes to smell pineapple. He's so hot right now. He's so hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> Next topic. So this week had two stories associated with domestic violence. MLB pitcher Mike Clevenger is under investigation for allegations involving the mother of his 10-month-old daughter and the daughter herself. Apparently, MOB has known about these alleged incidents as early as last June, and yet they still allowed Clevenger to sign with the Chicago White Sox for a $12 million contract. Also this week, Charles Amenhu got arrested for suspicion of a misdemeanor domestic violence incident and was later released on bail. These come after other incidents previously mentioned on What These Balls Missed, involving UFC President Dana White and University of Texas coach Chris Beard. So, gentlemen, A, do sports leagues really care about domestic violence? And B, do, is there really an issue, and should we should sports leagues be caring about this a little more? I mean, I think when it comes down to it, when you get a bunch of rich, competitive type A men um, that probably drink too much that probably have bad social skills um maybe on steroids maybe on steroids Mm -hmm. i think you're going to get these problems um should the leagues care about it of course they should i think that domestic violence in general is just this terrible unspoken issue that needs to be pushed to the forefront um will they well if it comes up they will right and that's what we we've been talking about um with things like the boston celtics firing bad press needs to be addressed because you don't want to be the major organization that ignores it 
I think they should get out in front of it. They'll be like, it seems like way too many times it's a reactionary punishment or suspension or whatever, like only when it blows up too big. And I feel like they need the courage to get these guys out of there and really set examples before it looks like they're just doing it because they're potentially losing money. It's funny because, yeah, as you read the question, I was I was thinking to myself, well, are they taking it more or less seriously than than most of corporate America where, you know, I'm just my own personal anecdotal evidence. Most of corporate America, honestly, they're they're as concerned as far as it affects their ability to maintain their resources and affects their bottom line. Right. And if it's not messing up the business status quo, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but they probably don't pay it much attention. I think there should be zero tolerance though. And, and, and sports organizations as with all organizations, right. If Mm -hmm. it's something that the company is aware is going on, right. There should be some, some HR, programs interventions possible contact with the court systems you know i mean how much does the nfl care about kareem hunt beating that woman up in in, see there yeah right how much do they care if tmz doesn't scoop that video yeah i mean that's that's the part of the nfl that's just kind of gross you know yeah you know my opinion about the nfl and with regards to domestic violence they tried to skate by for as long as they could i mean Goodell was giving out two-game suspensions for for these incidents for the longest time. He finally got a little smart, and he decided to give it to a third party. And then that third party did something awful with uh, Deshaun Watson and was like, well, the NFL only did this, so I think that I'm going to suggest the, a six-game suspension for Deshaun Watson. Oh, yeah, right. Um, that was a joke. This, is, this has always been my opinion, especially just really with the NFL. They kind of care about this being in the news cycle, but... People are talking about the NFL. Anything to talk about players in the NFL or people involved with the NFL, I think that's one reason why it's such a juggernaut because you are talking about the NFL all year long. Even though they have the shortest season, it almost seems like they have the longest because you are talking about the NFL all year. Guess what? At the Super Bowl, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the draft. And... Even after the draft. Oh, what are we going to talk about the draft? Oh, now we're going to talk about mini camps and then training camps. And, and how in short those, Stenson Bennett is. And in this, and how very short he is. But in between that, oh, there's news stories that come out about, you know, you have the Ray Rices, you have the Deshaun Watsons. I really wish that sports leagues would care a little bit more about it and have a little bit more of a zero tolerance with regards to it. Make an example out of someone because it's, it is serious. It's a very serious societal issue. And I really wish the sports leagues took it more seriously, but I feel like they're not. I just looked up a stat. There has been, over the last 14 years, 87 arrests involving 80 football players. So that is a shockingly small amount, unfortunately. Yeah. It's it's just a shame. And then we're not even talking about what's going on with Daniel Snyder. The fact that he's just involved with so much controversy, and it really... You know, it it took a uh, a subpoena from Congress to kind of tell him it's like okay, maybe I should sell the team now, and he still oh, yeah. hasn't a hundred percent committed to selling the entire team. Uh, but it is kind of looking that it will happen. Unfortunately, I I don't think Jeff Bezos is going to be the one that to buy the team. It does finally look like Daniel Snyder is going to sell it. Although I'm gonna I'll believe it when I see it. Unfortunately, too, we got a lot of violence issues with the children. Um, with uh, Adrian Peterson, with Tyreek Hill. Yeah. 
people forget about those stories very easily too. Can I submit a random topic? What do we make of the end of the direct TV Sunday ticket era and the fact that apparently this is going over to YouTube, YouTube TV. Yeah. Have you guys mm. talked about this on the show yet? No. No, oh, we've talked no. about the oh, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> the stretch of um, Goodell's hands and the fact that, you know, we're going NFL Europe, we're going more days. Mm-hmm. It's going to uh, Derek TV is going to lose a lot of the subscribers because I think a lot of people were doing it for the NFL package. Although I think more people are doing Red Zone now than they are Sunday Ticket. Yeah. Is that a separate wow. subscription? I forget if that's. Oh, and it's much cheaper. Oh, okay. It's like $10, $15 a week, a month or something like that. Pete, can you tell us about your disappointing NFL Plus experience? Oh, yeah. I was in Alaska and I wanted to watch the, the Bills game. And it was like, oh, NFL Plus, you can get every game and blah, blah, blah. And okay. So I look into it and I do a seven-day trial. It would still just go to whatever was like like the local affiliate. And it was like throwing on every game but Buffalo, Miami. I'm like... That's the one I want. Why can't I just pick the one I want? I'm I'm trying your That's paid false service. It's stupid. That's false you can't advertising. Cr- you can't Chromecast that to any screen. They won't let you do it from a phone to a TV. It's it's really limiting. And it's like, do you want people to watch your games? Like, yeah. Sorry, people people don't rig up an antenna on their roof or or, or pay two hundred bucks a month for cable anymore. So the NFL, right? One of the most profitable businesses in the world can't get it together to a buy a streaming app platform right? just buy right. one just right just buy the best one that's available and buy then take from disney take all the content that they own charge 30 dollars a month you could charge anything you wanted oh yeah well within i mean within, within reason, reason for say us our middle class salaries but i mean who is not going to pay to put 10 games up right at the same time for all their gambling needs for all their sports you know the guys who watch six hours of football a day right who's not going to watch that i would cheerfully pay 50 a month from august to february for something that gives me all the good stuff as a, like right the well, that's highlights what Sunday every is. super bowl <laughs> well but i yeah. but but i could say like, show me super bowl 42 right as a streaming thing right like Hulu, oh, right in yeah, addition cool. to every game every sunday no bullshit no blackouts, no mm-hmm. if this guy's carrying versus the other. No, just done. We're done with all of that. You're right. You That's what games, NFL Plus should we be. We got them. Yes. That's what NFL Agreed. Plus should be. That's what I thought it was going to be, and it really wasn't. But, John, they're they, not. So they, they don't want to share. The NFL is not good with sharing. They want their they want their own piece of the pie or whatever. Don't they? Own There's NFL bad, Plus. They shoot themselves. They what if they, if they own NFL Plus, why don't they? Get out of all their legal agreements with NBC Miami and all the bullshit news state broadcasting. They don't news have stations. to. No, they don't have to. They still actually have the rights still... to all those those games. Yeah, they can still do that live. This is in addition to that. So it makes no sense to me why NFL Plus was was is like that. I mean, just so utterly lame. And I mean. We talked about it too, but the idea of the Amazon Thursday night game, that was the most well-broadcasted NFL game I've seen in a long time. Fantastic. The cameras are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Right, right. You can see the individual stitches on jerseys in 4K. Right, just throw money at the problem because you will get a return on your investment. Without a doubt, if these Balls Could Talk sponsored advice 
<laughs> do it NFL seriously. Yeah. 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 And right. Do it. Make the quality hard to pass up. Like, right. You, you have NFL films shooting all these games. Yes. You have broadcasting limitations with a lot of the equipment, but like if they could be the first sport to just be 4k HDR all the time and like not upscaled bullshit, but like actually native 4k like that'd be amazing right you own all the second. best broadcasters yeah you you, you hire a sure. mean you hire romo you hire all the guys people want to listen to and you just make it better because you're the nfl and it's not like you don't have the money yeah, yeah. i heard i heard with the new google thing too the killer app is you can finally get just your team right so bills fans can buy just the bills package you know see, and they don't that, have to see all the other stuff that would be great you That's could already do that with NFL youtube tv plus should have done <laughs> Like I can, I get all my local channels, so I, and I they're they're always broadcast. So why do I need to get an NFL package for that? It's the final topic. I thought we weren't allowed to do this anymore. No, we are not. <laughs> we're but we're going to. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> we're gonna get a cease and desist from Europe. <laughs> if these balls could talk, has no affiliation with the band Europe. What's the song called? Countdown. <laughs> Those rights are exclusive to them. So now, again, for something completely different, I had an interesting realization this week while researching. In my continuing tennis education, Mark continues to talk about Jessica Pagula, and there is some talk that Jessica could be the next tennis superstar that Mark keeps mentioning. Her 2023 is off to a fantastic start, beating world number one handily earlier this month, and now she's currently in the quarterfinals for the Australian Open. So tennis stats aside, I just learned Jessica is the daughter of American billionaire and Bill's owner, drink, Terry Pagula. Hmm. So my question with this, for someone who doesn't play tennis to support herself or her family, does this give Jessica an advantage or disadvantage in her rising stardom? Well, as we've kind of established in the past, tennis is a somewhat of a privileged game and you do need some... I guess with just about any sport, though, you you need kind of money to be able to invest in the right coaches and whatnot. Uh, so it is a little bit of an advantage. But in, when you get to the point where she's at, you you still need the talent in order to be as highly ranked as as she is. Uh, I believe today she lost in the semifinals, or maybe it was yesterday. She's not she's not in the finals. Um, there's actually. Uh, let me see if I remember this. Uh, uh, Plitskova, who uh, lost to Azarenka. I'm, I'm sorry. She beat Azarenka, I believe, is in the final. And I can't remember who the other woman is. Uh, but Jessica Bagula is definitely the highest ranked woman currently. And she she's gotten close. Um, in the last four majors that she's participated, she's gotten to the quarters. She She's very talented. Uh, her her doubles partner is Coco Goff, by the way, who's also a very, a very talented young, young and up and coming American uh, tennis player. So she has the chance to to do something great, potentially win a major. Uh, I don't know if it's going to come at the French because she's not a very good clay court player, from what I understand. Uh, but I mean, I'm, I'll be cheering for her. she's she's an American, and I, I love cheering for Americans at at tennis tournaments. Pete, did you know that Jessica uh, Terry Pagula's daughter was an international tennis player? Yeah, I did. Um, I didn't know she was doing that well this year. I, I know she has been winning a lot. She's, you know, been getting into a bunch of tournaments and, and getting through a few rounds. So I, I just didn't know that she was like that running that hot this year. 
Yep, she's um, the highest ranking American woman right now. Wow. Number three in the world. Apparently lost badly to Azarenka today. If you're going to pick a woman, an American woman to, to win a major, she would be your the favorite. Although, again, she hasn't really gotten past the quarterfinals. So, I, I mean, I'm de- I definitely cheer for her, uh, just again, because she's, she's an American woman. And I definitely want to see as many great American tennis players as possible. Can you um, tell me, Mark, about this number one Polish tennis player, Iga, and I'm going to say Sviatek? Sviatek. Sviatek. Tell me about this person. Uh, she's very consistent. Um, and she she's she won a lot last year. She deservedly should be the number one ranked tennis player right now. Uh, it's, it was actually a little bit surprising that she lost so, so early. There was actually a story... Uh, that didn't catch much traction, I believe, about how the tennis balls kind of felt a little fuzzier and were bouncing <laughs> a little differently in the Australian Open. Fuzzier and past. bouncing differently? Yes. God, this is that such that an exciting sport, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to th- listen. When you've been hitting as many tennis balls as they have, you get used to how high that they bounce. Mm-hmm. And you you are probably hitting thousands of tennis balls a year and again, you're expecting them to be of a certain standard. And when they're not, uh, it's it's just that little change, even like if it was a half an inch lower than where it normally would be, that totally throws you off. I mean, let's compare it to let's compare it to like basketball. Say the free throw line, I think it's like 20 feet from the basket. I could be wrong about that. But let's say they all of a sudden decided that they were, were going to have, oh, now free throws are going to be at, at uh, 23 feet. Think of how different that would be. How uh, and, and free throw percentages in, as a whole would go down. But it's, it's seemingly a small change. 15 but feet, Mark. It's, it's 15, 15 feet. feet. I was so close. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's say they change it to 20 feet. And now it's, it's only five feet difference, which, you know, to an average... Uh, person probably sounds negligible, but it's a huge difference because the chance of you hitting a 20-foot shot versus a 15-foot shot is actually pretty, uh, it would make a difference, especially when you are so used to shooting it from 15 feet. So for the insight for the listeners and all the other tennis noobs out there, Igas Feyatek has 11,025 WTA points this season. Mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. Oh, she's going to be number one for a while. Pugula and Anz Jabor, which is a Tunisian woman, they yes. both have 5,000 and 5,140 respectively. So, I mean, the idea, I think, of that is that she is dominating the field. Is that a, is. A, a good thing to say, Mark? That, yes, that is accurate. And Anz Jabor also, actually, she got ousted very uh, early on in this tournament. Uh, she is ranked number two in the world currently, and she made it to the semifinals of... One of the tournaments last year, I can't remember which one. I think it was Wimbledon. So she, uh, yeah, she made it to, uh, yeah, she made it to the Wimbledon final now that I think about it. She, there was a big story about her being the first African woman to ever make it to um, a final. Uh, I, I don't know if, I think it was in a major final and not just a Wimbledon final. Uh, and she would have been the first African woman to, uh, to win a major. If It also uh, looks like won. Azarenka has already been knocked out of the semifinals. Yes, mm. I think she lost to Pliskova. Rhea Bakina. Oh, Rabakina. Oh, I'm sorry. Rabakina. And so the Australian Open women's final is Sabalenka and Rabakina. Gotcha. Uh, and Rabakina R- is ranked, Rabakina's ranked like 22nd or something like that, or 24th. 
So there's are there like an odds line in Vegas for women's tennis? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, sure yeah. Is, you can yeah. bet on everything. Now I'm interested. How about you, Colin? <laughs> yeah, that's that's compelling. <laughs> you can bet on anything. You can probably bet on, you know, the number of times that Lamar Jackson has to take a poop during the game. By I'm the way, sure that really happened. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Lamar uh, Jackson, re- not a sponsor of the podcast. <laughs> Real quickly to circle back on uh, Jessica Pagula. I forgot, like you're talking about how did you just google get, search jessica pagula no this is something i, <laughs> I knew creepy. about before <laughs> um you were talking about people of like needing like the next tiger woods right to get somebody into a sport but Absolutely. she does she does have that little bit of like snarkiness or swagger like she tends to go right on uh cameras like literally right on the camera lens with a marker and she'll write some messages this time when Demar Hamlin went down in the Cincinnati game, uh, with Buffalo, she wrote go bills number three heart, uh, just a little bit earlier this year. She's got to win though. So that has been our 10 topics. Please follow or like us on our socials at if these balls pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our website is www.ifthesballscouldtalkpod.com where you can see our sports news of the day. You can talk to us through discord And we have some new features, including our new online shop, where you can purchase some of our show swag, and AI Story Hour with ChatGPT. We would like to thank our guests for joining us this week. Thank you, Dr. Beach. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. This is Mark Pesci, and for my partner, John Companion, and producer, Pete Steffen, that's what we feel they would say if these balls could talk.